Praise the Lord, everybody. I'm really glad you have victory in Jesus today. Amen. Well, it's good that spring is, is on the way, and I see a lot of bright colors, and, and that's a good thing. Amen? Amen. How many are inviting folks out to Easter Sunday and your family, your friends, your neighbors? I think that'd be a good thing to do, and we're anticipating a great time in the Lord. And, uh, you know, this is a time of year when uh, people are, are considering things about God that maybe they haven't thought about all year long. But, but you know, God can enter in even into those, those moments when people have, have, have not walked with him all year long. When they begin to think about Jesus, there's something very powerful that happens in the human heart. When you begin to think about Jesus, did you know there's power when you just think on the goodness of Jesus, when you just begin to consider his works and all that he's done? And we Christians who have surrendered our lives to following after Jesus, we have to be very careful that we never get to a place where when we think about Calvary, something doesn't happen inside of us. Every time we think about the blood of Jesus, something ought to stir inside of us. I'm not saying we have to run the aisles, but something in our spirit ought to be thankful. How many are thankful for what Jesus did at Calvary? I'm thankful that Jesus is here with me today. I'm thankful that I can feel his spirit. Amen. And I know that you are as well. I want to jump into our lesson. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this lesson. I'm going to probably wind up spending at least two lessons on this subject. And I read an article that was the catalyst for this lesson, and the article was entitled Commercial Christianity versus Biblical Christianity. And it was written by Joseph Matera. And Joseph Matera is a minister. He's not a oneness apostolic minister, and that's why the article caught my eye, although he is a Pentecostal preacher. And I was fascinated by the term that he coined, commercial Christianity. And I'd like us to look at this article in a minute, but I'll I'll take us back to that so we don't jump ahead too far. But the reason that I, I feel strongly about this is because Christianity is is a powerful thing. Christianity literally changed the world. And there's a movement in the world today that many people are now familiar with. There was a time where it was kind of something that was below the radar screen of the average Christian, the average preacher. But it's a term that you'll probably recognize, ecumenicalism. And we're living in what many would like to be an ecumenical society. And in the broader context of the world outside of Christianity, there's a strong movement that would, would try to convince you and I and anyone else that would listen that all religions are the same thing, that all religions ultimately lead to the same God. And so... In that brand of ecumenicalism, the the Muslim is the same as the Christian and the Christian and the Buddhist. And in the end, all religions are the same thing. Now, for some people, when they use the term ecumenicalism, what they mean is that we need to work together in harmony for common good. And let me just go on the record and say, I believe that's absolutely true. 
I think we should unite in areas just like we would unite with anyone. Christianity should not be a force that is fighting against good people who are trying to do good things. For example, if someone takes a stand for life, I'll stand beside them, whether they're Muslim, Buddhist, whatever they are. If they're standing for life, I'll stand side by side with them and fight for life. Someone said, praise the Lord. If someone is standing for morality, regardless of their religious background, regardless of their personal life, I'm going to stand beside them for morality. Someone said, praise the Lord. But if what you mean by ecumenicalism is that all religions lead to God, that all roads lead to the same thing. Of course, we know the Bible teaches us that there is one Lord, one faith. Someone said one faith and one baptism. And so as Christians, that is exactly why Jesus commissioned us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. And that name is Jesus. Now, the reason Jesus did that is because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father. Amen? No one can get to God but through Jesus Christ. But for the blood of Jesus, that's what we already sang about this morning. That's the deeper context of understanding that there's victory in Jesus. There is salvation in Jesus. Neither is there any salvation in any other name except the name of Jesus. And so as Christians, we understand that if we love people, we can stand with other religions for good. But in the end, We believe that there is no way to heaven except by the blood of Jesus Christ, except for obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in the context of Christianity, everyone said Christianity, there is a movement even within the context of Christianity that is calling for what I sometimes call Christian ecumenicalism. And in that movement, it would say something like this. It would say, well, the Baptist, the Methodist, the Pentecostal, the Episcopalian, the Catholic, everyone who comes under the banner, the broad banner of Christian needs to come together and needs to say that you're saved just like everyone else is saved. In other words, it's an ecumenicalism that would like to say that there's no There's no right. There's no right. There's no one group that has the whole truth. There's no one group that really knows the way to heaven. Everyone has kind of a partial truth. And if we would all just lay our differences aside and come together, we could could do great things. Now, I understand the allure of this kind of thinking. Is everybody still with me? I know we just kind of jumped in head first this morning. And some of us are, we still feel the water in our face and we're not quite sure if we're alive or not. But but now I understand the, the allure of this kind of thinking because on the surface, it sounds very kind. It sounds very nice. It sounds very loving. And many people who, and a lot of, let me just say this too, a lot of good people have been 
fooled, if I could use that term, by this kind of philosophy because it's non-confrontational. It's passive-aggressive. My wife will tell you my personality, if I'm just left to my own personality, I can lean towards being passive-aggressive. I've had to pray and ask the Lord to help me. I know I don't seem like it when I preach and teach. I know I seem aggressive and probably a little pushy and loud mouth, but, but in, in my personal life, just in my, if I were just in my daily routine, I don't, I'll go to the next city to avoid an argument if I can. If I see an argument coming, I'm going to jump the tracks, get to the other side and run from it as fast. That's just my person. Now that's not always good. Sometimes you have to face an argument. Sometimes the right thing to do is to face confrontation head on. And now some people just love confrontation. Some people haven't even, they don't even, they, they have to get their coffee and their confrontation at the same time. They, they, they put the creamer in the coffee and they put a little confrontation in there and they get out, get out of the house and they go looking for somebody to pick a fight with. And uh, I'm the opposite of that. I, I'm the guy, when I see that kind of person, I run for the hills. I can't stand it. And so I understand there's a part of certain people's personalities that, that we, and especially if you're a kind person, how many want to be a kind person? If you're a, if you're a loving person, I, I understand how it, it sometimes appeals to our carnal understanding of what it means to be loving. How many know that there is a carnal understanding of love and there is a biblical understanding of love? All right. Culture, and I don't have time to get into this because, boy, I'll really get behind, but culture has completely redefined the word love in the same way that culture has completely redefined the word gay. Just go back and listen to a Christmas song uh, from 1945 and hear them sing about the word gay. They mean something completely different than what you would mean if you were to use the word gay today. Words can be hijacked. Words can be manipulated. Words can be changed. And so in our culture, one person can stand up and talk about love and mean something completely different than someone who has a biblical worldview when he or she stands up and preaches and teaches about love. I've made up my mind that I want to have a biblical understanding of what love is. And that means that if the Bible says that unless you repent of your sins and you're baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and you receive the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance, my Bible teaches me clearly that that is exactly what is required for a man, for a woman to be saved and to spend eternity with God in heaven. And so if I love people, if I love people, I'm required to tell them this is what you must do to be saved. Even if they don't like it, even if it makes them not like me, that is what love is. If my child wants to touch a hot stove and they want to with all of their might. Okay, let me give you a better example. 
My children have internal radars that know when candy has come into the French house. My wife can buy it, you know, for a holiday or something, and she can sneak it in because if, if, if you don't sneak it in the house, they're going to find it. I don't even know when. I think they must wait till we're asleep and get up in the middle of the night and get down there. And my wife can hide it under the couch and way back behind things in cupboards. And my children have a radar system. They can find it. I mean, they, they, and they know it's in the house. They'll say, there's my son the other day he said, Daddy, can I have a, some candy? I said, no, son, we're not having candy. You know, it's 730 in the morning. And that's not a joke. That's a true story. It's 730 in the morning. We haven't had breakfast yet. We're not having candy. And he said, but, but Daddy, he said, uh, and I said, I don't think we have candy. And, uh, and he said, but we do have candy. I saw Mom hiding it under the bed. The other day, he, uh, and uh, I, I won't say who it is, but there's a certain grandfather who pastors this church who uh, loves to give my son candy. And, uh, and my son loves him with all of his heart for it. And for other reasons, too. And so my, my son came to me the other day and he said, Daddy, my stomach just hurts so bad. And I got worried, and then I realized, I, I looked, and in his pockets, turned them inside out, I mean empty, empty Lifesaver wrapper. I mean packed in there. It must have been 30 Lifesavers. He'd eaten every single one of those things. And so sometimes my kids will come to me, you know, 9 o'clock at night, and they'll say, you know, I, I want to I have this candy. I want to have that. I want to have that. And as a parent, I know that they cannot live on candy alone. They would. My son will, if he knows there's going to be dessert, he'll skip the meal so he can save room for dessert. He won't eat anything. And we'll have to tell him, no, you've got to eat the chicken, and you have to eat the mashed potatoes, and you have to eat at least two of the green beans, and then he cuts them in half. You got to at least two. You can't just live on candy. I know that feels good. I know that seems right. But in the end, it'll make you sick and do all kinds of bad things to you. And so as a loving parent, even though that's what they want, right? Even though that's what might make them feel good for a minute. Anybody going to deny that candy doesn't feel great for a minute? You can eat an entire jar of Nutella and you're not going to regret it for a couple hours. You're going to have a couple wonderful hours where you say, thank you, Jesus. That jar tasted good. And then you get a couple hours down the road and you're going to be you're going to be hurting and you're going to be sad and regret and shame. <laughs> Praise God. I'm not speaking from too much personal experience here, but the shame will come in. And so. As a parent who loves my children, I have to say, no, we're not going to live on candy alone. No, we're not going to stay up all night. No, you have school. You can't stay up till two o'clock in the morning. You have a test in the morning. But daddy, that would be so fun. I'd love to do that. And sometimes, sometimes as a parent, because you love them, you're tempted to let them do what they want to do when it's not the right thing. As Christians, there's millions of Christians 
who have fallen into the commercial Christianity trap, the ecumenical Christianity trap of wanting to be able to tell people that things are okay, that are not biblically okay. And sometimes it's not out of bad motivation. Sometimes it's good motivation because you just want people to be happy. But my Bible tells me that the pleasures of sin are only for a season. Here's what it all boils down to right here. If you believe that the word of God is true, you have to stand on every word of it. If you believe that the word of God is true, then you have to be willing. That's why Paul would use words like contend for the faith. That's why he would talk about that's why he would talk about having sound doctrine. That's why that's why he would sometimes liken this to a battle or to a race or to a war because there's times when you have to be willing to stand up in the face of opposition. Sometimes people will try to portray you as the bad guy. They'll try to paint you as unloving and uncaring. But you have to recognize that because you love people, because you care about people's soul, because you can't bear the thought of a single person spending eternity in hell, you've got to be willing to have courage. You've got to be willing to stand up for your convictions and say, yes, I believe the word of God. Yes, I will preach the gospel. Yes, I will stand for holiness. Yes, I believe in righteousness. Yes, I believe that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Even when, the, even when the majority of the quote-unquote Christian world stands against you, you have to be willing to stand up for the word of God. And by the way, much of what we call the Christian world bears no resemblance to the apostolic church of the book of Acts. In fact, much of the Christian world is indeed not Christian at all. And I know that sounds harsh for many people, but... In fact, in many cases, much of what we call Christianity is not Christianity at all. It's really more of a form of self-help or something. In many ways, it falls into a category of, of just like a self-help book or, or a life coach or something of, of, of that magnitude. But we need to stand for the pure, unadulterated word of God. Someone said, praise the Lord. All right. And so that's why I was intrigued when I came across this article by Joseph Matera. And I'd like to read just a small, it's a long article. I'd like to read just a small portion of it here from his article entitled 21 Contrasts Between Biblical and Commercial Christianity. And he said this, after Pentecost, Acts chapter 3 and later, Christ followers were first involved in something called the way. After the gospel progressed to the non-Jewish world with the planting of the church in Antioch, the world called Christ followers Christians because they were made up of both Jews and Gentiles who exhibited a radical devotion to be like Christ. Since Christianity was legalized by Emperor Constantine in the Edict of Milan, AD 313, Christianity went from being the way to an institution that included nominal members who knew nothing regarding the radical faith of their early forebearers. Since that time, Christianity has become a popular, commercialized entity with only a remnant of followers with a biblically-based radical commitment. By radical, I do not mean extreme or fanatical with odd antisocial and or violent behavior. I mean the dictionary definition, radical, 
affecting the fundamental nature of something far-reaching or thorough. Unfortunately, what many today deem as radical was considered normal Christianity in the early church. And what is considered normal in the present church would be considered compromising to the early church. Let me give you a great example of that. In, in today's commercial Christian world, especially in the Western United States, it is considered unusual and strange and in some places it's considered highly controversial to speak in other tongues. And yet, if you were to read through the book of Acts, it is full of people speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. How strange would it have been to the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul to step into a culture that is supposed to be a Christian culture where the majority of people don't even believe in speaking in other tongues. In fact, many of them would consider it a form of demon possession to speak in other tongues. And yet, the true church of the living God must stand up and say, you must receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. We are simply standing upon the word of God. Clap your hands if you believe that this morning. I know I'm teaching to the choir. How many could wave your hand if you could testify that when you received the Holy Ghost, it was the greatest gift that God ever gave to you? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And there's many other examples that we could use of things that that would have been completely normal. In fact, it would have been it would have been the standard practice in the early church. And yet, if you look at the typical commercialized Western church, it would be strange, rare and unusual. What we need is a reformation. We need a revival and we need a great awakening in the United States of America. I wish someone would say praise the Lord to that. All right, so I'd like to go through a couple a couple examples, a couple contrasts, if you will. Uh, and I won't get through all of them this morning. But I'm going to contrast biblical Christianity and what, what we've coined today, what Joseph Matera has coined commercial Christianity. Number one. Commercial Christian pastors preach culturally accommodating messages. Biblically Christian pastors preach culturally convicting messages. Acts 24 and 24, and after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Do you hear Do you hear how Paul preached to Felix? He reasoned of righteousness. Someone said righteousness. He preached temperance. Someone said he was a holiness preacher. And judgment to come. He preached hell to Felix. And Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. Leave me alone. Because when I have a convenient season, doesn't that sound like a lot of people? I will call for thee. When things are a little better, when it's not as hard to follow Jesus, when... When I've, when I've kind of done some of the things, the carnal things that I'd like to do, when, when the time is a little more convenient for me, I'll call for you, Paul, and I'll go ahead and be obedient to the gospel. Paul never compromised the word of God for popularity. Someone said, praise the Lord. And he never preached messages 
that were culturally favorable just so that he could get a new jet, just so that he could wear a nice suit, just so that he could get a group of people. Just because you fill a building up doesn't mean you have a church. It just means you have a group of people. What we need is churches that are full of people who are biblical Christians, who are standing on the word of God and who believe that there is a time and a place where conviction must flood our heart. If you haven't been convicted in a little while, it's probably because you haven't been in a prayer closet for a little while. You can't spend too much time in a prayer closet without feeling conviction. You can't spend very long in an old-fashioned apostolic altar before you're going to feel a little conviction. I'm not preaching that to you. I'm preaching that to me. Every child of God must be comfortable with the convicting hand of God. We need God's conviction. That's how God deals with us. That's how God talks to us. That's how God protects us. Did you know conviction is a protection? It's a, it's a safety mechanism in your life. If you, don't, if you haven't felt that safety mechanism, it's kind of like when you get in your car and it, it can be annoying when, you know, I'm one of those people, I admit it, I don't like to wear a seatbelt. I do it. Don't, don't come attack me after church. I do wear it. I don't like to wear it. I sometimes forget to put it on and thank the Lord. They make the cars now. If you forget to put your seatbelt on, it beeps at you. I mean, it almost gives you a migraine. The one in my car, I mean, it sounds like a bomb is going off. And you, you have to put your seatbelt on. It's either that or lose your mind. Thank God for that. That's how, in many ways, that's the convicting power of God. Be careful that you don't shut that safety me- mechanism down. Many people do. They shut it off. They find ways around it. They smash it. They get it out of there. Anything they can do so they don't have to feel the conviction and do what they need to do. But people who love the Lord are thankful when the safety mechanism begins to be. They're thankful when a preacher has the courage to stand up and say, thus saith the word of the Lord. They're thankful for a man of God who will pull them aside lovingly once in a while and say, listen, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we're not compromising the word in our life. And the moment that you find yourself resenting preaching that brings conviction, Prayer times that bring conviction, moments in the altar that bring conviction, family members, loved ones, friends, saints of God who speak conviction into your life. I'm not talking about people who speak uh, mean-spirited things into your life. That's not conviction. I'm not talking about people who come in and do mean things into your life. That's not conviction. But there are people sometimes you have to have the courage to say, listen, I love you and I feel like I feel like something's not right. I feel like something's moving in the wrong direction. Can I pray with you? Can I fast with you? Can I help you? Can we crack open our Bibles together? Can we realign ourselves with the things of God? And if you hate that kind of thing, you need to be very careful. Because biblically sound Christians welcome conviction into their life. Can you say praise the Lord? Number two, commercial Christianity encourages adherence to the status quo. Biblical Christianity encourages reformation of the status quo. We've all heard the verse quote in Acts 17 and 6. He said that these are they that have turned the world upside down. The early church literally 
changed their culture. The early church didn't become like its culture so that it could minister to the culture. It changed the culture so the culture could be like Christ and Christ could bless the culture. I don't want to be like the world so that I can slip Jesus on them. I want the world to be like Jesus so Jesus can pour out blessings on their life and change them and sanctify them. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Number three, commercial Christianity invites. Biblical Christianity declares. Biblical Christianity declares. Acts 17 and 23 For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, this is Paul. He said, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. That took a lot of courage, didn't it? Now you say, well, he lived in a different world. No, in many ways, he lived in a much more dangerous world than we live in in the United States. I'm not talking about our precious brothers and sisters who are being martyred. Do you know we have brothers and sisters being martyred all around the world? The battle that we fight in the United States is for the mind, but we have precious brothers and sisters of like-minded faith all around the world, and their struggle is literally for their physical well-being. And and if their very life isn't at stake, It could be their livelihood. Maybe they're being pushed out of jobs and they're being pushed out of position and they're being undermined and they're being pressed down. I want you to know we need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for the gospel's sake. And we need to wake up in the United States of America and understand that we have precious freedom and the battle that we're fighting is really a battle for the mind and for the heart. We're fighting a battle against Christians who would call us to compromise and to and to and to take portions of the Bible and stand for those, but then cut other portions of our Bible out and throw those away. Listen, it doesn't work that way. You can't just get a little bit of the medication. You've got to get the whole word. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee, O God. He didn't say part of thy word. He said thy word. Amen. And so we need to stand up for these things. You know, there's people, there's people in Africa right now. They walk 25 miles one way to go to church. And we come to church on Sunday morning and we can hardly get through Sunday school. I want you to know we need a revival in the United States. We need to fall in love with the word of God. We need to get excited about the word of God. We need to lay petty differences aside and we need to stop fussing and fighting over silly things. And we need to recognize that there is a lost world, a world that needs the gospel that we have have and we need to be a city that is set on a hill praise the lord number four i'm getting too excited i'm preaching i need to go back to teaching here commercial christianity converts people to their churches biblical christianity converts people to jesus now i want to put a little caveat here i do believe that we need to be loyal to our local church how many believe that I believe that we need to be thankful to our local church. I believe that we need to support the local church. I believe that with all of my heart. But in the end, we're not converting people to a church. We are converting people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And there are buildings. Let me say this. And this, this is going to sound unloving to some people. But if you knew my heart, if I could show you into my innermost heart, you know, I say this with love and not with a mean spirit. There are buildings all over the United States that call themselves churches and they are nothing more than buildings. I never want apostolic tabernacle to be a self-help building where people just come and feel good for a little bit. We need to be a part of the church of the living God, a city set up on a hill, up on this rock. Will I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Philip opened his mouth in Acts chapter 8 and 35, he be, and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Je- you know, if we would just preach Jesus more, I think we'd be surprised. If we would just talk about Jesus more, if we would, in our own personal, I don't mean behind a pulpit, if we would just talk about Jesus more. You don't have to talk about every, every little doctrine and every little nuance. Just talk about Jesus. It, you, don't get caught up in every little thing over here. People want to draw you into arguments so that they can make excuses not to go to your church. What you need to do is just talk about Jesus, him crucified. Talk about what he's done for you talk about how much you love him talk about how there's healing in the name of Jesus talk about how there's salvation in the name of Jesus talk about how there's joy unspeakable and full of glory in the name of Jesus if we would preach Jesus more we would be surprised at how we would see things change in our society Jesus just speak the name of Jesus number five commercial Christianity separates faith from public policy. Biblical Christianity applies the gospel to policy. And let me go to number six. Commercial Christianity is defined by the situation. Biblical Christianity redefines the situation. Look at Acts chapter 8 again in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ. There that is again unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed and with them and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy into the city in the city. You see what happened? Philip went into a city that was filled with demon possession. He went into a city that was full of sickness and pain and turmoil. And when he began to preach Jesus, miracles began to happen. When he began to preach Jesus, lives began to be turned around. He didn't accept the situation and say, well, that's how Atlanta's always been and that's how it's always going to be. He didn't say, well, that's how my county's always been and that's how it's always going to be. He didn't say that's how my family's always been. My daddy was an alcoholic, so I've got to be an alcoholic too. He didn't say my mom struggled with that sin and I've got to struggle with it too. No, he went in and preached Jesus and Jesus changed the situation. Preach Jesus in the midst of a dark world and it can change a city. It can change a county. It can change a nation. It can change the world. How many believe that today? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right, I'll let this be my last one. Commercial Christianity is complicit with the powers that be. Biblical Christianity passed down the ungodly powers that be. 
Commercial Christianity will often enter into unholy alliances, most of the time for money's sake, compromise for the sake of financial gain and things of that nature, things of that type. But biblical Christianity will always stand up for what's right, regardless of what power, regardless of whether it's an earthly power or a spiritual power. Biblical Christians will always stand in the gap against those things. Let's read it together. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every, someone said every, every, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. See, that's where we are in the United States. We live in a culture that wants to exalt itself against the knowledge of God. See, it's not enough just to know who God is, but you need to understand what God stands for and the mechanism that God has given us for understanding his nature is the holy word of God. How many believe that today? Stand with me. We ought to be willing to stand for it. I know it makes some people uncomfortable to speak this way, but we should be willing to give our very lives for it if need be. Give our very lives for the word of God. Praise the Lord. How many want to be a biblical Christian today? Would you just lift up your hands and say, Lord, give me the courage, give me the strength, give me the revelation. God, I pray right now that there would be sound revelation. I pray that the Holy Spirit would sweep into the hearts and minds of men. I know, God, that it can sometimes be demanding and difficult to stand up and be a lone voice like John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, standing up, preaching a gospel of repentance, Lord. But I pray, oh God, that we would have the courage to do the right thing, even when people that we care about, Lord, would turn their back on righteousness. I pray that we would have the courage to stand on your word, that we would love it, that we would live it, God. And I pray that it would be alive to us in the name of Jesus. We give you praise. We give you praise. We give you praise. Clap your hands to the Lord one more time. Amen.